So, in the Castle of the Skull. So, on Friday we heard something about Padmasambhava's sojourns, I like that word, sojourns, in the cremation grounds, the eight great cremation grounds of India. We heard about his encounters with the Darkanis, those strange goddesses, and we saw how they symbolised the release of our deepest energies so that they can enrich our spiritual practice, our spiritual life. And we saw that the cremation ground is the crucial situation deliberately sought out where we face our deepest fears and release the energy locked up in those fears. And the cremation grounds of ancient India were also places, and I think they still are, uh, places of initiation, instruction and teaching. They were places where you could meet the great teachers and some of these teachers were really rather mysterious dangerous looking characters sometimes human sometimes not human sometimes they were buddhas in fact seen in vision and these places uh, where we, you would have to go if you were going to go there with courage commitment and dedication were places where you received initiation, in other words, where the deep mysteries of reality, of the Dharma in its deepest sense, uh, would be revealed. So Padmasambhava spent many years in the cremation grounds, undergoing all kinds of experiences, learning all sorts of things, transforming himself in so many ways. And the reason why he did this was very simple. He did it not just to transform himself into perfect Buddha, all the qualities of Buddhahood, but to benefit others. To benefit others, as many others as possible, as fully as possible. To really become a great master, a great teacher. Padmasambhava is called Guru Padmasambhava because he is the symbol, he's the embodiment of the archetypal Guru. He's the Guru who is the master of all dharmas of all the possible teachings, not just all the different Buddhist teachings, which uh, he made into a living experience. But Padmasambhava learned on his travels, not just in cremation grounds, but in other places as well, all sorts of human skills and abilities. On his journeys, he learned all sorts of arts and sciences, all sorts of skills like writing and calligraphy, skills like oratory. This was incredibly important in uh, the India of that time, learning how to develop all sorts of skills as a teacher, as a communicator. Um, there are even sort of magical practices that you could undertake to develop these skills because you want people to come to the Dharma, not because of some egoistic thing, but you want them to connect with the Dharma so you'd learn the rites of fascination and the skills of oratory. Um, I was reading the other day about a great... Uh, Indian tantric master named Vilasovadra who uh, had this incredible memory, absolutely perfect memory. Anything said to him of a, you know, that was important, he remembered. Perfect recall. And this was given to him, this particular Siddhi, uh, as it's called, by a Vetala. A Vetala. A Vetala is a vampire. Very interesting. Very rich and colourful world, that world of ancient India. But anyway, coming back to Padmasambhava, he was learning all this 
in order to reach anybody and everybody. And there's actually a great message for us here in this room collectively there's probably a very well I'm certain there's a very impressive range of skills talents and abilities all sorts of different characters with different qualities very very rich indeed if we were to spend time going into that we would discover we would find that we were with a very impressive group of people well supposing all of that was harnessed and employed to benefit others so that they might grow and flourish and change. This very group of people could have a very, very powerful effect, actually, on the world around us. So we need to think like this. We won't individually, in a way, become a Padmasambhava, mastering all dharmas, but perhaps collectively, we could aspire to that. And this is one of the meanings of Sangha, of spiritual community. Sangha isn't just something, you know, we don't just come together to benefit one another in the Sangha, although that's incredibly important. We don't just come together to support each other on the path. We come together to live, to work, to practice together, to learn together, to create something more than our individual parts so that we can have a powerfully positive effect on the world around us. It's incredibly important to remember this dimension of Sangha or spiritual community. Padmasambhava then is not just the guru, the master of all dharmas, he's also the Vajra guru. He's no ordinary guru. Vajra is of course the thunderbolt, the diamond scepter which he holds in his hand. It's adamantine, indestructible. It destroys absolutely everything, the Vajra. So it's a symbol of reality, of wisdom, of truth that destroys all ignorance, all unknowing. And this is what Padmasambhava's overwhelming concern is. His overwhelming concern is to destroy ignorance and all the expressions in us of ignorance because he sees that it's ignorance that causes suffering in the world. It's why we suffer. It's why we cause suffering to others. It's why there is so much pain and suffering. At root, it's because of ignorance. And ignorance is manifestations in greed and hatred and all the rest of it. And Padmasambhava also has all the lotus-like tender love and compassion a love and compassion that's so intense, but so strong, it wants to break through, break down our ignorance, but also incredibly tender and kind. So yes, he, will has, he develops in order to undo this ignorance, all kinds of skills, all kinds of abilities, what are called siddhis. But all these cities, all these skills and abilities are all employed to break through our ignorance, our lack of awareness, and to bring out the wisdom that's within us. But uh, Sangharachita describes the meaning of Vajra Guru as the no-nonsense guru. The no-nonsense guru. Because the Vajra Guru doesn't care what he does to the disciple to break through their ignorance. He doesn't, he's not interested in uh, 
in a sense, in the disciples' feelings. He just wants to break through, break down the ignorance. That's why Vajraburus can be uh, quite difficult to be around. But you notice here that um, some of the things I've mentioned um, are found in the Padmasambhava mantra that you're chanting regularly. So just, just to remind you of that, when we chant Om Ahum, we're invoking enlightened body, speech and mind. Our goal, uh, Buddhahood, body, speech and mind transformed into the body, speech and mind of a Buddha. And then we chant Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hum. So in this way, when we chant uh, the, the mantra, um, uh, we're, we're um, oh, I've lost my page. When we chant the mantra, found it again, um, we're meditating on Padmasambhava's qualities. We're meditating on the Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi so that we can develop them within ourselves. Now in this talk, I want to focus on two particular initiations and teachings that Padmasambhava receives on his journeys. Initiations in this case and teachings into the very depths of the Dharma. And they're very mysterious indeed, these initiations and teachings, and we can only wonder at what is really going on. But hopefully in telling you about these, something will be communicated. So sometime on his travels, Padmasambhava made his way to a very strange cremation ground indeed. I say strange, but also, in a way, it's quite familiar. He went to a place called the Cemetery of Sleep in the mysterious paths of Beatitude. The Cemetery of Sleep in the mysterious paths of Beatitude. Very vivid translation. Sleep and dream are very important in Buddhism. Sleep and dream are an intermediate world between two waking states. In sleep, in dream, the ordinary world is suspended. We're in a world of magical transformation where anything happens, where anything can happen. According to Buddhism, major spiritual experiences can occur in the dream state. There are, like the Native Americans say, there are such things as big dreams, life-changing dreams. Dream and sleep are a cremation ground. So he entered that world, the cemetery of sleep, in the mysterious paths of beatitude. So it's the sleep of a higher state of consciousness. The ordinary senses have gone to sleep, but the visionary senses, the subtle senses, are very much alive. And when I um, read this story, reflect on this particular story, I see it taking place in a kind of darkness, I don't know why, lit by a very strange light. Everything is sort of self-luminous in this darkness, black light. Anyway, that's just me. Anyway, in the cemetery of sleep, in the mysterious paths of beatitude, Padmasandava came to a sandalwood garden, sweet-smelling and lovely, 
But within the sandalwood garden was the cremation ground, at the centre of which was a great castle made entirely of human skulls. We regard our world as a sweet-smelling garden. We make ourselves comfortable at eat and at ease in the sweet-smelling sandalwood garden. But if we were to look deeply, we would see the decay. We would see the cremation ground with a great castle of skulls at its centre. A castle of skulls sounds grotesque, sounds frightening, but not for Padmasambhava. He knew that this great castle of skulls was nothing less than a celestial palace in which a great teacher was residing. He, he saw, in other words, the, within the cemetery of sleep, a sort of palace representing, symbolising spiritual death, the death of our whole conditioned being. But it's also the place of initiation, the place of spiritual rebirth. So Padmasambhava approached the castle of the skull, but it was closed. The door was firmly locked. There was no way in, no entry. And Padmasambhava knew in his dream, in his sleep, that unless he could enter, liberation would not be possible. He had to go in to the castle of the skull. There then appeared, these things happen in dreams, a beautiful young maidservant named Kumari. And she was a maidservant of the great teacher who dwelt within the castle of the skull. And Padmasambhava gave her a letter, asking her to deliver the letter to the great teacher. And in the letter, he was asking for initiation. And the maidservant disappeared into the darkness. And a little later on, she reappeared. And Padmasambhava said, Have you given, given the letter? Have you forgotten to give the letter? And there was no reply. Kumari was mute. She was silent. She was just busying herself with fetching water, leaving the brass water pots on the ground, just ignoring Padmasambhava. It was a very weird situation, a test, a challenge. The castle of skulls is locked and the only human around is a young servant girl who is mute. But Padmasambhava is not to be thwarted, never to be thwarted. The great hero Padmasambhava, the great yogi, he started to rest his gaze on the water pots, his penetrating gaze. And when the girl came to lift the pots, she couldn't do so. Try and try, she could not move those pots. They were completely stuck. And then she spoke. I see that you are a man of special powers. But what about me? And she took out a crystal knife and cut herself from the chest to the navel, just opening herself up 
completely. There were no internal organs, no blood, no gore. Instead, in her chest, there was a great mandala, a great magic circle of peaceful Buddhas, all seated in deep meditation, all the colours of the rainbow. And in her stomach, a great mandala of blazing wrathful, wrathful Buddhas, standing with all their weaponry. And Guru Padmasambhava immediately bowed down, thinking that this humble maidservant, Kumari, must be the teacher he was looking for. But she just said, I am just the servant girl. Come inside. And she opened the door into the castle of skulls, into the palace of skulls. And there in the flickering lamp-lit gloom, seated on a great throne made of the sun and the moon, stacked up one on top of the other, the throne of all opposites resolved, all duality transcended, sat the great red darkani, Surya Chandrasiddhi, the magical attainment of the union of solar and lunar energies. Now we heard about Darkanese the other day, the more worldly Darkanese, the, the, the Darkanese that uh, represent the deeper energies in transformation. This Darkani is rather different. This is called a wisdom Darkani. Surya Chandra Siddhi is a wisdom Darkani. In other words, an archetype of enlightenment, a female Buddha, a symbol of the highest enlightenment. She is, in fact, the highest darkani, the darkani that is the integration, the complete focusing of all the Buddhas. She's also called Sarva Buddha darkani. She is the integration of bliss and emptiness, compassion and wisdom, masculine and feminine, sun and moon. And she is deep red, the colour of passion, of fascination, of the intense love that draws you in, that draws you towards it. And there she was, sitting playfully on her throne, her left foot hanging slightly down, her right drawn up and wrathfully smiling. So a wonderful smile, alluring seductive but with some wrath some fierceness as if to say do you really want to be here and with her long black lustrous hair falling down and with a garland of skulls around her neck and wearing ornaments illustrative symbolic of the sun and moon and holding a skull bowl filled with red nectar in her left hand and her right hand gesturing, communicating mysteriously, communicating the truth in some mysterious way, <coughs> sitting regally on her throne of sun and moon, a great queen. And immediately Padmasambhava just prostrated. He knew he'd found his teacher. And he made offerings He'd circumambulated her. He walked around her. He praised her. 
He was completely open, receptive, eager to receive whatever she had to teach. He's passed through all the tests. And he could see in that temple, in that celestial palace of the skulls, he could see above her, in vision, mandalas, magic circles of Buddhas. And he entreated her to initiate him, saying, you are my teacher, you are my guru. I don't even need to see the Buddhas, just show me the true, the majestic and superior lake of glory as revealed in the full moon of your face. So he was really seeing her, seeing the searing beauty of her Buddhahood. And she replied, Ah, you know that all the Buddhas are gathered in me. And then suddenly, as soon as she'd said those words, Padmasambhava began to shrink. He just began to shrink until he was a tiny syllable. The syllable Hum. Just vibrating there in the space before Surya Chandra City. He'd just become a syllable. He didn't panic. He didn't wake himself up out of the dream, terrified, as we probably do, if that was happening to us. He was whom? Which was the essence of all his energy, quivering and vibrating. And then the darkened Surya Chandra City swallowed him swallowed the whom Padmasambhava completely disappears into her this is an extraordinary detail from an extraordinary visionary dream journey when we hear the word initiation we think that we're going to be given something very often we're going to get something the Lama, the Guru does some chanting rings some bells holds up a holy water pot and somehow something is done to us. But that's not real initiation. That's the outward ceremonial. Initiation is a transformation. Initiation is activated by your attitude. The attitude that comes from going to the cremation ground. The attitude that comes from a, a keen awareness of the ever-present reality of death the attitude of intense faith, intense love for your teacher, tremendous determination and commitment to give yourself fully to the teacher, to the path. Then the teacher is activated. Then the initiation can happen. And what happens is that the teacher shrinks you to your essence. He strips you bare and swallows you. At initiation, you don't get anything. You vanish. You spiritually die. There is a wonderful Persian Sufi work, the first one, uh, 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 an old Persian Sufi work called the Sawani, by a great Sufi master named Ahmad Ghazali, whose uh, brother was the more famous uh, Al Ghazali. But Ahmad Ghazali was a proper Sufi master and the Sawani is all about the real meaning of love love here meaning 
the qualities needed to enter into the vast realm of spiritual realities, which is also described as love. Path and goal are both love, but not a love as we would know it. And at one point, Ahmed Ghazali, and it's a very, it's a sort of spontaneous work. He just sort of says things that just come out of tremendous inspiration. And at one point, Ahmed Ghazali suddenly says, love is a man-eater. It eats up human nature and leaves nothing behind. Once it devours this nature, it gains possession of the domain of the lover's being and becomes its commander. When you go for initiation, you are consumed. You are eaten. You completely dissolve into the inconceivable. Now, when I was reflecting on this, I became very conscious of two particular men here on this retreat, Adrian and Juan Carlos. became very conscious of them when I was writing this because in the spring they're going off on their four-month ordination retreat. And during the course of uh, that retreat, they'll have their ordination ceremony, the first part of which is private. It's in secret. They'll go alone into the darkness to the palace of the skull. And there they will be eaten. And they won't be returning. Somebody will be returning, but not them. I hope they realise that, and I hope they're ready for that. So just a little tip for you. After being swallowed as whom, Padmasambhava felt all the blessings of the wisdom darkening fall upon him. He travelled through her, travelled through this vast consciousness. Firstly, as he passed through her throat centre, all the blessings of the great red Buddha enveloped him. You just have to imagine what that might possibly mean. There he is. There is an image of the great Amitabha. All that red, all that stillness, all that discriminating wisdom enveloping Padmasambhava in the darkening's throat centre. And then Padma as whom descended down into the heart centre. And there all the blessings of Avalokiteshvara enveloped him, flooded him. Avalokiteshvara is the archetype of great compassion. He was flooded with compassion, endowed with compassion. The compassion that is the expression of Amitabha's wisdom and stillness. And then he travelled further down into her navel. And then he was ejected through what they call the secret lotus, the vagina. And he was blessed now as higher griever, an archetypal form symbolising tremendous active energy and of the, the tremendous active energy of wisdom and compassion. Higher griever means the horse necked. Padmasambhava felt thoroughly purified, reborn, remade. After spiritual death comes spiritual rebirth. And so Padmasambhava at this time, after going through this incredible journey, is given another name. When you read Padmasambhava's life story, he has an extraordinary number of names. Every 
In every cremation ground, he gets given a different name. After every teaching he receives, he gets given a different name. In fact, it says he's got eight present names, eight secret names, eight hidden names, 20 magic names that vary at will, all illustrative of his uh, transforming power. Anyway, he was given the name at this time of Guru Loden Chokse in Tibetan, or if you prefer the Sanskrit, Guru Mativat Vararuchi, which can be translated as the intelligent youth, the one who gathers the knowledge of all the worlds. I don't know if Adrian and Juan Carlos will come back with a long name like that when they emerge from the Palace of the Skull. We'll have to see. Before leaving the wisdom darkening, you know, he has to leave. It's, he's, he's, uh, it's time to move on. She sends him away. The wisdom darkening Surya Chandrasiddhi told Padmasambhava to go to yet another cremation ground called Rugged Grove to seek out another great teacher named Sri Singha, the Radiant Lion, to receive a profound teaching that was hidden in his Vajra, his adamantine heart. So off went Padmasambhava to the rugged grove to find Sri Singha, the Radiant Lion. And it was said of this great teacher that he continuously, uninterruptedly, contemplated the Dharma. All aspects of the Dharma in a single indivisible whole. He, continually, he was continually dwelling on the profound essence of reality. And he could see how every expression of the Dharma was fundamentally the same, in essence. And it was also said of him that in order to teach, in order to communicate, in order to explain the Dharma, you must go straight to the depth, straight to the essence. This was his rule, it was said. So Padmasambhava found this man, Sri Singha, dwelling in rugged grove, and his appearance was rugged. He had hardly anything on, just a sort of loincloth. He was bearded and his hair was tied up in a knot on his head. He was sitting completely relaxed and at ease and content in rugged grove, living very simply, very happily. And after Padmasambhava had come to him, after he'd bowed and asked for the teaching, suddenly Sri Singha, with great staring eyes, suddenly pointed into the sky, into the depths of the clear blue Indian sky, and just said, do not cling. Do not cling to thought. Do not cling to what arises, to what arises, to what arises. Do not cling to what does not arise, to what does not arise. Arising and liberation happen at the same time. Arising and liberation happen at the same time. Empty. 
not empty. Not empty. Strictly empty. Without stopping. Without stopping. Stopped. Stopped. With stopping. Forever empty. Forever empty. Strictly empty. Strictly empty. Without limits above and below. Ever flowing from everywhere. Vital, ultimate truth. This treasure of Sri Singha will reveal itself when vision and meditation are united and perfected. This is what Sri Singha said. And after speaking, he vanished into a diamond depth. This was the transmission, the communication of Sri Singha to Padmasambhava. I think it's very significant that this transmission, this teaching comes after the wonderfully rich and colourful stories of cremation grounds and darkenings and the meeting with Surya Chandra City. All these rich and gorgeous symbols arise and pass away in the vast expanse of empty space. As all life does, as we do, as our thoughts and moods do, we need to cultivate and develop and keep that vision in all that we do. Padmasambhava was never, is never, apart from that vision. Through all his journeyings, he maintains that sense of vast space and enjoys but never clings to the ever-changing, wondrous transformations. In our case, we so often just get lost in the details of life, in problems and issues. We tie ourselves and others in endless knots. We, we need to remember to look up, to look out into the rich, deep, vital space of reality. We need to refresh and replenish ourselves and just allow the transformations to come and go like clouds in the sky. Tomorrow this retreat will change. It will dissolve into space. Some of you will be leaving, going back to your usual life, but perhaps changed, maybe irrevocably changed. Others will be staying on and we will be joined by over 50 people. There will be a dramatic transformation. Whether you are leaving or staying, we all need to respond to this change creatively. This is just another manifestation of the arising and passing away of all things in the vast and vibrant space. We need to roll with the changes, delight in the changes, be ecstatic with the changes, like Guru Padmasambhava. Guru Padmasambhava holds a skull cup, a skull bowl, there it is on that particular painting, held 
up right in front of his heart. And it's filled with living, swirling, rich red nectar. The skull bowl is said to symbolise the emptiness, the unfixed, insubstantial nature of all things. Guru Padmasambhava can hold that skull bowl because he knows this truth. He knows it in his being. And so he clings to nothing and to no one. He is never static. He is never stuck. And the living, pulsing red nectar is said to be the amrita, the deathless nectar of great bliss, great ecstasy that wells up when you know the emptiness of all things and when you renounce all clinging. You just drink endlessly this great bliss, this great happiness, this great ecstasy. And not just for yourself. Ecstasy means standing outside of yourself, leaving yourself behind. So this bliss, this happiness, is never, this great bliss, is never, never can be a personal possession. It spreads and flows everywhere. It's all pervading. So, so you effortlessly share, certainly Padmasambhava does, you effortlessly share the bliss with everybody. So the bliss expresses itself as intense love, as real love. Not sentimental love, not clinging love, but the love that enables others to flourish and grow along the path. It's the love that sees the wonderful, the extraordinary, beautiful, searing potential in all life. It's Padmasambhava's great and overwhelming love for everyone. It's said that Padmasambhava's facial expression is a wrathful smile. It's a very mysterious expression, a very subtle expression, and rarely captured in Buddhist art. And it's, it's an expression that is filled with a kind of concentrated ecstasy. It's an expression of delight at the wonder of others. It's an expression of intense and fearless love that looks deeply into us, that looks into our very core. And Padmasambhava's love, his loving kindness, is intensely practical. It's expressed in actions that bring about the transformation of ordinary beings into Buddhas. If you remember anything about this week, remember this, that the only thing that is worth doing is to cultivate the love that is fully cognizant of the ever-changing nature of life, the love that can work magical transformations. In Mevlana Rumi's words, through love, bitter things become sweet. Through love, copper becomes golden. Through love, the dregs become pure. Through love, pains become medicine. Through love, the dead are made alive. This is the kind of love Padmasambhava embodies. So let's end this week's talks with a short praise of Padmasambhava by one of his most famous disciples. 
the beautiful, the devoted princess Mandarava, who herself was regarded as a Dharkani. Sometimes in the Tibetan tradition it's said that when you meditate on Padmasambhava, when you visualise him, when you imagine him in front of you or above your head in order to develop his qualities, you should imagine yourself as Mandarava. Whether you're a man or a woman makes no difference. You bring the attitude of the devoted Mandarava to your contemplation of Padmasambhava. And this is what she sang. Emao, triumphant one, chief jewel among the sons of the Buddha, Buddha who has attained perfection and who is devoted to the well-being of others, who captivates all beings with the hook of grace, who is the healing power of love, dazzling, joyful epiphany, extending favour to all, placing friends and foes alike, on the path to liberation, soul protection for blinded beings. Stay here with us and teach us the Dharma. <laughs>